Chapter 19 of Pioneer Work in the Alps of New Zealand by Arthur Paul Harper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Timmerman Vaughan. Chapter 19 Glacier Observation. The Number and Area of the Chief Glaciers. Relation of Neve to Trunk. Are the glaciers advancing or retreating? Rates of Motion. The Tasman compared with Franz Joseph. The Future of the Southern Alps. When it is considered that glacier exploration and observation have only been taken up seriously in New Zealand during the last few years, we have every reason to be pleased with the amount of information already collected, more especially as there have only been two or three persons devoting their attention to the subject, the majority having spent their time in climbing peaks only. I assume that a glacier which descends from a neve to a point below the line of perpetual snow is of the, quote, first order, end quote. On this basis there are, within a radius of 17 miles from Mount Cook, or the central portion of the Southern Alps, 31 such glaciers, of which 25 are on the western and 6 on the eastern side of the dividing range. Note. Ice streams of the first order, which are tributaries of larger glaciers, have been included with the main glacier as one, end of note. Of these, Twenty are of a respectable size, sixteen on the west and four on the east, while the remaining eleven are of minor importance, and only hanging glaciers sending a tongue of ice down a gully below the snow line. Though few in number, the glaciers on the eastern side of the Alps are larger than those on the west, with two exceptions, because the valleys are fewer but longer. It is the number of offshoots and valleys on the west, descending to sea level in so short a distance, that make that country so hard to explore. In speaking of the eastern glaciers, within the above radius, I must rely on the figures given by Mr. T. N. Broderick. Note. New Zealand Alpine Journal, Volume 1, page 307. End of note. Who has alone made any systematic observation on the four larger glaciers in the Tasman district, and who has most kindly placed his results at my disposal? All his work has been done with a theodolite, and therefore may be depended on as accurate. The following are his figures, showing the areas and dimensions of these ice fields. Name, Tasman. Area of glacier in acres. 13,664. Area on which the neve now lies. 25,000. Length, 18 miles, 0 chains. Average width, 1 mile, 15 chains. Greatest width. 2 miles, 14 chains. Name, Murchison. Area of glacier in acres, 5,800. Area on which the neve now lies, 14,000. Length, 10 miles, 70 chains. Average width, 0 miles, 66.7 chains. Greatest width, 1 mile, 5 chains. Name, Muller. Area of glacier in acres, 3,200. Area on which the neve now lies, 7,740. Length, 8 miles, 0 chains. Average width, 0 miles, 50 chains. Greatest width, 0 miles, 61 chains. Name, Hooker. Area of glacier in acres, 2,416. Area on which the neve now lies, 4,112. Length, 7 miles, 25 chains. Average width, 0 miles, 41.3 chains. Greatest width, 0 miles, 54 chains. Of the many glaciers in Westland, there are only two larger than the Muller and Hooker, 
namely the fox and franz joseph there are several others however over four miles in length as our work was only done with a prismatic compass i cannot put the results forward as more than approximate and have not attempted to ascertain the areas of supply and glacier ice this being the case i shall not commit myself by quoting more than a few figures and results the length of the fox glacier is nine and three quarters miles the franz joseph eight and one half miles the balfour six miles the mccarrow five miles the strontian la perouse and spencer four and three quarter miles and the victoria glacier four and one quarter miles the douglas glacier has a trunk of three miles seventy chains and a neve running parallel to it of three miles twenty chains in length and therefore the whole glacier would exceed in area some of the above which have a greater length the horace walker also though only three miles sixty chains long receives ice from a large neve for about sixty chains along its side which would make it little less than the spencer in area it would be interesting to make some comparison between the relative proportions between neve and trunk in the case of perfect glaciers and disconnected glaciers one would imagine that given the same general altitude of surrounding ranges the trunk of a disconnected glacier would be smaller in proportion to its neve than in the case of one perfectly formed if we examine the proportions on various glaciers of neve to trunk we find it impossible to advance any rule as to the relation between the two areas the douglas glacier has a neve approximately three times the size of its trunk which is a larger proportion than that of all the other chief glaciers except the franz joseph and fox glaciers which have neves approximately five and three point five times as large as their trunks the supplies of the four glaciers in the tasman district based on the above table are one point eight two point four two point four and one point seven times as large respectively as their trunks the douglas glacier therefore shows an excess of neve such as would be expected but when the area of the balfour glacier is examined we find that its trunk exceeds its neve and is three times as large in area approximately of course in this instance the precipitous nature of the surrounding ranges does not admit of a large snowfield why therefore does the trunk of the balfour attain such a size it is larger than that of the douglas also both are shut in by precipices and covered with moraine the douglas has a peak from which to draw supplies one thousand one hundred feet lower than mount tasman and probably has a smaller snowfield to depend on but it has a large flat surface on which a large neve can find a resting place therefore it has better opportunities than the balfour of receiving sufficient supplies to enable a larger trunk to form in the valley however rapidity of descent in the valley bottom and many other facts have to be considered before a satisfactory answer can be given to the various questions which occur to any one seeing these two glaciers everything favors a larger trunk glacier in the douglas than in the balfour it is higher above sea level has a larger neve and the relative positions of the two parts of the glacier are conducive to size but in spite of these facts we find that the douglas with a neve about six times as large as the balfour has a trunk only two-thirds the size i have assumed that the neve is the portion of the glacier well covered with snow at the end of the summer so that the trunk is practically limited to the quote, dry ice end quote. our observations on the glaciers are not of sufficient age yet to determine to what extent they are advancing or retreating in the tasman district reliable traverses which can be replotted at any time were made by mr broderick 
of the terminal faces of the Tasman Glacier in November 1890 and the Müller Glacier in March 1889 and November 1890. This is all that has been done to determine advance or retreat, and no other observations have been made to compare the present positions of the terminals, nor can I ascertain that any cairns to estimate side shrinkage have been erected. Considering the number of climbers who have, during the last three years, been in this district, it is a pity that a day or two was not spared from the rush after new ascents, for the purpose of putting up a few permanent marks. Personally, I have only been in this locality during the few days mentioned with Fitzgerald, since 1892, but as far as I could estimate, there appeared to be a distinct advance on one side of the terminal face of the Tasman Glacier. Owing, however, to the necessity of immediate return to my work on the west coast, I had no time to make closer examination, nor erect cairns. The Hooker River interferes to such an extent with the terminal of the Müller Glacier that it will never be easy to determine whether alterations are due to retreat or not. In the absence of fixed marks, and owing to the shortness of time since observations were commenced, it can only be said generally that to all appearances no change is taking place in any of the four large glaciers. Owing to the terminal faces of the Fox and Franz Joseph being so easy to reach, and being in a district overrun by diggers, we can to some extent estimate the change from hearsay or old photographs, and further retreat or otherwise, can be measured from the cairns and marks which I have left in these two valleys. The Franz Joseph was, about the year 1867, according to an old photograph of the terminal face taken by Mr. Pringle, far in advance of its present position. The ice pushed its way. Note. See the map in Chapter 11. End of note. Against the Fourgorge Moutonnet, and it was possible, so I hear from a digger, to touch it when on the top of the Sentinel Rock. The park and harbour rocks were covered, and apparently the Müller and Strauchen were half enveloped by the ice. I estimate that the glacier at that date was eighty or one hundred yards further in advance, and ten yards wider on the east bank, on the average, than in September 1894. There is evidence of this retreat on the rocky banks of the glacier on the east side, both at the terminal face and further up the valley. The rocks for some yards ahead of the ice, and for some feet above its present position, exhibit clean, newly rubbed surfaces of a lighter color than the rocks above. This at first misled me to expect a large winter advance, but it evidently testifies to a recent retreat all along the line. The positions of the cairns, which I have made for future reference, can be seen in Appendix Note 7. The Fox Glacier, as already stated, is moraine-covered at the terminal face for a few chains back, and therefore the changes would not be so rapid. It is narrow and uninteresting at this point. During our visit in 1894, our scientific ardor was damped by excessive rain, and when I was alone on the glacier, my unlucky mishaps prevented extra work. We have therefore only two marks. Note. See Appendix. Note 7. End of note. At the terminal face, for future reference. The moraine-covered ice here enabled many diggers to cross the river on the glacier, and we may gather to some extent the position of the snout in 1894, as compared with that of twenty-five years earlier. From these accounts I estimate that no change has taken place, a conclusion borne out by the fact that there are here no such marks of recently dressed surfaces of rock like that noticed on the Franz Joseph. At the terminal face there is a low dead moraine with some scrub growing on it, 
and the ice practically touches that now, as it did twenty-five years ago. The surface moraine is evidently of great age, for there are several pieces of vegetation on it, some little distance from the actual snout. From hearsay evidence again, it is clear that some twenty years ago the Spencer Glacier in the Callery Valley descended into the river, the water washing against a face of ice, so the diggers say. In 1893, though not close enough to measure its exact distance from the river, I could see that it was at least a chain away. Thus, retreating seems to be going on here, while from all accounts the Burton has not altered its position. In summing up the results of my personal observation on these glaciers, it seems that while the Hooker, Muller, Burton, and Fox glaciers have undergone no change during the periods in which they have been known to us, the Spencer and Franz Joseph are retreating, and the Tasman to a slight degree advancing. On the other chief glaciers, the McCarrow, Marchant, Horace Walker, Balfour, Strachan, Fetz, Douglas, Victoria, and Murchison, I could see no marked signs of recent change of position. The conclusion, therefore, if we may presume to draw one after such short knowledge, seems to be that at present the New Zealand glaciers are not receding to any appreciable extent. On the subject of glacier motion, we have some interesting figures, those of Mr. Broderick on the four glaciers of the Tasman district, and those of Douglas and myself on the Franz Joseph. As Mr. Broderick has been kind enough to place his at my disposal, I shall quote them in toto. Tasman Glacier, line one near the Ball Glacier, rods set on the 5th of December, 1890, and reset on the 7th January, 1891. Station one, total movement, 27.2 feet. Average daily rate, 9.9 .9 inches. Station two, total movement, 41 feet. Average daily rate, 14.9 inches. Station three, total movement, 47.7 feet. Average daily rate, 17.3 inches. Station 4. Total movement, 48.4 feet. Average daily rate, 17.6 inches. Station 5. Total movement, 49.6 feet. Average daily rate, 18 inches. Station 6. Total movement, 46.9 feet. Average daily rate, 17 inches. Station 7. Total movement, 44.2 feet. Average daily rate, 16.1 inches. Station 8. Total movement, 38.3 feet. Average daily rate, 13.9 inches. Line 2. Ranged from point of the Malterbrunn Spur. First set December 5, 1890 and reset 7th January, 1891. Station 2. Total movement, 6.5 feet. Daily rate, 2.4 inches. Station 3. Total movement, 25.9 feet. Daily rate, 9.4 inches. Station 4. Total movement, 28.7 feet. Daily rate, 10.4 inches. Station 5. Total movement, 32.7 feet. Daily rate, 11.8 inches. Station 6. Total movement, 36.6 feet. Daily rate, 13.3 inches. Station 7. Total movement, 33.7 feet. Daily rate, 12.2 inches. Station 8. Total movement, 34.4 feet. Daily rate, 12.5 inches. Station 9. Total movement, 29 feet. Daily rate, 10.5 inches. Station 10. Total movement, 25.4 feet. 
daily rate nine point two inches station eleven total movement thirteen point nine feet daily rate five inches murchison line ranged from point above dixon glacier set on december twenty ninth eighteen ninety reset forty eight hours later station seventy eight total movement one inch daily rate point five inches station seventy nine total movement seven inches daily rate three point five inches station eighty total movement one foot four inches daily rate eight inches station eighty one total movement one foot five and one half inches daily rate eight point seven inches station eighty two total movement one foot two inches daily rate seven inches station eighty three total movement nine inches daily rate four point five inches station ninety two total movement nine point two inches daily rate four point six inches station ninety three total movement five point two inches daily rate two point six inches hooker line ranged at a point three-quarter mile from the terminal face set at noon on april fourth eighteen eighty nine and reset april seventh eighteen eighty nine at eight a m station one total movement three point three inches daily rate one point one inches station two total movement eight point two inches daily rate two point nine inches station three total movement twelve inches daily rate four point two inches station four fifteen point four inches daily rate five point four inches station five total movement twelve point eight inches daily rate four point five inches muller various marked stones first observed on the twenty ninth march eighteen eighty nine and again on the fourteenth november eighteen ninety and third december eighteen ninety three station one eighteen eighty nine to eighteen ninety total movement two hundred and thirty nine point three feet daily rate four point eight inches eighteen ninety to eighteen ninety three total movement three hundred and ninety two point seven feet daily rate four point two inches station two eighteen eighty nine to eighteen ninety total movement two hundred and seventy one point seven daily rate five point five inches eighteen ninety to eighteen ninety three total movement three hundred and seventy one point four feet daily rate four point one inches station three eighteen ninety to eighteen ninety three total movement four hundred and six point three feet daily rate four point four inches station four total movement two hundred and sixty two point six feet daily rate five point three inches eighteen ninety to eighteen ninety three total movement four hundred and twenty four point eight feet daily rate four point five inches station five eighteen eighty nine to eighteen ninety total movement three hundred and fifty nine point six feet daily rate seven point three inches eighteen ninety to eighteen ninety three total movement four hundred and thirty six point four feet daily rate four point seven inches station six eighteen eighty nine to eighteen ninety total movement three hundred and ninety eight feet daily rate eight inches station seven eighteen eighty nine to eighteen ninety total movement six hundred and eleven feet daily rate twelve point three inches station eight eighteen eighty nine to eighteen ninety total movement five hundred and six feet daily rate 
10.2 inches, 1890-1893. Total movement, 889.2 feet. Daily rate, 9.6 inches. Station 9, 1889-1890. Total movement, 409 inches. Daily rate, 8.2 inches. Total movement, 409 feet. Daily rate, 8.2 inches. 1890-1893. Total movement, 557.5 feet. Daily rate, 6.2 inches. Station 10, 1889-1890. Total movement, 388.1 feet. Daily rate, 7.1 inches. Station 11, 1889-1890. Total movement, 146.1 feet. Daily rate, 2.9 inches. On the Tasman, Murchison, and Hooker, rods were carefully set and reset in lines across the glaciers. The instrument used was a five-inch theodolite. Quote, a different method was adopted on the Muller, in order to show the direction as well as the velocity. Four trigonometrical stations were placed on the huge lateral moraines near the lower end of a glacier, and they were then used as bases for determining trigonometrically the positions of the stones on the ice. Each stone had a number painted on it, and every care taken in observing. The great steadiness of the ice motion is a noticeable feature. The stones have retained the same upright positions for nearly five years, and the rods supported on them by piles of stones in 1889 were found there in 1893. The original positions of the stones on the Muller Glacier must be stated in order to draw any conclusions from their rate of motion. Number one is in the center of the glacier, 63 chains from the terminal. Number two is in the center of the glacier, 53 chains from the terminal. Number three is in the center of the glacier, 61 chains from the terminal. Number four is in the center of the glacier, 77 chains from the terminal. Number five is in the center of the glacier, 89 chains from the terminal. Number six is in the center of the glacier, 107 chains from the terminal. Number seven is in the center of the glacier, 122 chains from the terminal. Number eight is in the center of the glacier, 145 chains from the terminal. Number nine is 10 chains from the south side and 122 chains from the terminal. Number 10 is two chains from the south side and 111 chains from the terminal. Number 11 is 11 chains from the south side and 48 chains from the terminal. From these figures, we see that the rate of motion is not constant, for the stones had not traveled so far towards the terminal face as to account for the decreased motion in 1893. It is also evident that the winter flow must be very sluggish, for the Muller Glacier has a greater fall per mile than the Tasman, and therefore at least as great a rate of motion would be expected. It is evident that the lower average rate is due to the observations extending over winter as well as summer. All the other measurements record summer motion only. The only glacier measured on the west coast is the Franz Joseph, the motion of which Douglas and I endeavoured to estimate in 1893. I put forward our results with some misgivings, for they are very startling. We placed a row of stakes along the ice and reset the line again after the intervals mentioned in the table below but though every care was used, the results can only be quoted as approximate, for a prismatic compass is not sufficiently accurate, and may be responsible for a considerable error in such observations. The figures, however, are just as likely to be under as over the mark, for it is impossible to say on which side 
the error would be when it is considered that we could see with a naked eye the change in position of a mark on the ice after an interval of twenty-four hours it is evident that the daily summer motion is very considerable the side motion in the following table is accurate for we had marks on ice and rock to check our results franz joseph line one station one seven days total movement thirty-five inches daily rate five inches direction magnetic three hundred and twenty remarks fifteen yards from north side line one station two twenty days total movement six hundred inches daily rate thirty inches direction magnetic three hundred and thirty five point three remarks about five chains north side line one station three four days five hundred and thirty one inches total movement daily rate one hundred and thirty two point seven five direction magnetic three hundred line one station four four days total movement four hundred and eight inches daily rate one hundred and two inches direction magnetic three hundred and fifty two line one station five four days total movement two hundred and twelve inches daily rate fifty three inches direction magnetic three hundred and fourteen line one station six no return line two station one three days total movement four hundred and sixty inches daily rate one hundred and fifty three point three inches direction magnetic two hundred and eighty six remarks eight chains from north side line two station two three days total movement four hundred and seventy four inches daily rate one hundred and fifty eight inches direction magnetic three hundred and eight line two station three three days total movement six hundred inches daily rate two hundred and nine inches direction magnetic two hundred and eighty five point three line two station four number of days three total movement six hundred and twenty one daily rate two hundred and seven direction magnetic two hundred and sixty point three line two station five three days crevasse opened peg lost line two station six three days total movement seventy one inches daily rate twenty three point six inches direction magnetic two hundred and forty two point three remarks six chains from the south side station side motion by arch creek seven days total movement fifty seven inches daily rate seven point two eight inches direction magnetic three hundred and thirty five remarks eight feet from north side line one was just above a small icefall ninety chains from the terminal face and was set on the twenty second november eighteen ninety three line two was above another steep fall in the glacier and at the foot of the great icefall one hundred and ninety chains from the terminal face peg number six shows that the motion is considerably checked by cape defiance and that the ice is taking a direction towards harper's creek the very rotten nature of the ice at the margin of the glacier prevented a nearer approach to either bank here this line was set on november twenty third eighteen ninety three the last station by arch creek was set on november thirteenth eighteen ninety three and checked by marks on the rocks it was forty three chains from the terminal face the above tables fully bear out the fact 
that a glacier moves faster in the centre than at the sides, and also that the rate of motion decreases as the terminal face is approached. The actual influence of the tributary streams of ice on the motion of the main glacier cannot be decided from our observations. It would be interesting to set on foot a system of measurements from which to arrive at some comparison between the rate of flow of tributaries and that of the main glacier, and if possible, follow the movement of the ice of the various streams after they have joined forces. For I presume that, though to all appearances these streams unite, yet they do not mingle, nor do they lose their individuality altogether. If this is true, it would add to our general knowledge on the subject to try and follow the individual streams after they meet. To draw satisfactory conclusions with regard to the rapidity with which a glacier flows at different angles of descent would be impossible from the above tables. Before any law can be laid down on the subject, much more complete measurements are necessary. The lines of pegs would have to be arranged at relative distances from the respective terminals. In the tables quoted, the rates of motion have been taken promiscuously, and only in two instances do the lines lie at all in similar positions as regards the terminal face. Reducing each glacier to 100 chains in length, we find by reducing the other figures that the lines of measurement were placed as follows. Tasman line 1, 36.1 chains from terminal. Tasman line 2, 26.3 chains from terminal. Hooker, 10.2 chains from terminal. Franz Joseph line 1, 13 chains from terminal. Franz Joseph line 2, 27.5 chains from terminal. This gives us two cases in which the rates of motion can be in any degree compared, namely, line 2 on the Tasman and line 2 on the Franz Joseph. Assuming that the figures returned for the latter glacier are correct, we find that its maximum rate is rather more than 14 times as great as that of the former. This is a very startling difference until we examine the respective falls per mile of these two ice streams, which are as follows. Tasman. Total fall, 313.3 feet per mile. From Neve to Terminal, 187.7 feet per mile. Franz Joseph. Total fall, 941.1 feet per mile. From Neve to Terminal, 1,064 feet per mile. The latter glacier, therefore, has three times as great a total fall and nearly six times as great a fall per mile below the Neve as the former. A series of careful observations which would give us the motion of the tributary streams and their influence in retarding or helping the flow of the whole mass, together with systematic measurements in similar relative positions, combined with the average fall per mile, should give us considerable help in deciding the laws relating to glacier motion, the effect of obstructions in the valleys, and various other results which we cannot compute from our present observations. I have, in the case of the Tasman and Franz Joseph, merely set down the particulars, for they are the only two that can be compared from observations already taken. Someone may, perhaps, be able to draw satisfactory conclusions from the figures, which I fear I am unable to do. All these points of scientific interest can be determined in Europe with as great exactness as in the New Zealand Alps. But the great attraction of the latter is that besides being able to make satisfactory observations, the observer has the pleasure of several virgin peaks to ascend, and also can observe the effects of a low snow and ice line in a warm climate. There is far greater activity in the southern Alps than in the European, and therefore the effects of snow and ice are more marked and much more easily recorded.
The avalanches are more frequent, falling night and day, than in Europe. The glaciers descend to a lower level, and the country is more shattered. Consequently, the action of snow and ice in altering the conformation of the country is going on to a greater and more noticeable extent. I do not know the Caucasus, but am well acquainted with Switzerland, and know Norway more or less. My comparison, therefore, only applies to the two latter countries. To a traveller seeking fine scenery, the southern Alps, especially the western side, offers a splendid field. I used to say that, below the snow line, New Zealand could not be compared with Switzerland. That was before I had been into the then unknown western ranges. I now say without hesitation that the southern Alps can not only be compared to, but in many cases exceed in grandeur, the scenery of Switzerland. The only thing lacking is the presence of human interest, for there are no picturesque peasants and chalets to give an added charm to the wild and glorious scenes met with at every turn. I often picture to myself a flood of tourists, overrunning New Zealand, as they overrun Switzerland and Norway, and imagine future developments resulting from such an influx. We should see, perhaps, a fine hotel or two on Welcome Flat, others on Castles Flat or at the head of the Twain, all of which localities far surpass many popular resorts in Europe in their attractions. However, may the day be far distant when hotels shall spring up like mushrooms in the glorious valleys of Westland, and the crack of the whip and clatter of wheels of Cobb and Co.'s royal mail coaches disturb their solitudes, and awake protesting echoes from their awe-inspiring cliffs and precipices. I do not wish these glories of nature to be hidden from travellers. Far from it, but should like to see a far-seeing government constructing a few horse-tracks and huts in some localities, which Douglas or I can mention. A few hundred pounds a year less spent on experimental legislation would enable such tracks to be gradually made, and the localities thus rendered accessible would attract travellers who would benefit the colony far more than Acts of Parliament. Travellers, however, must not expect to view magnificent scenery without some trouble and a little discomfort in a young colony. But for all that, they should not be debarred from seeing the finest sights for want of a few tracks. If the foregoing pages induce any persons to make an attempt to visit the Southern Alps for pleasure, or in pursuit of science or adventure, and if they cause the authorities to value properly one of the finest assets in the wealth of the country, I shall feel that my work has produced some tangible result. End of chapter 19